Well, good morning, everyone. I'm flying solo. Steve's being Mr. Mom this morning, so we'll pray for him. <laughs> you know, there was some truth to that. He was sending me the score. Have you seen this? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's okay. He's one of the hardest working guys I know, so it's good. Well, let's have a quick word of prayer, and we'll look at David. Father God, thank you for another day. So many times we forget that it is a gift. We worry about the things we've got to get done, our schedules, our lists, and we forget what it is to have another day until we have no more days. Help us today to do our lists, to get our jobs done, to work hard as you called us to, but also find time for that which you have prepared for us. We know it begins this morning by hearing your word, understanding what it was to be a man growing with you and also to be a man that failed. Help us to learn from David's lesson and not walk that road. As we lay our head down tonight and it's dark again for us, may we be thankful for what we've been able to do with you today. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. All right, I think we're in 2 Samuel 14, continuing on with this train wreck, this car wreck that is David's later life. I'm curious, this whole Absalom, Tamar struggle, from your perception, how much time is the Scripture spending with this? A lot. More than David and Goliath? Yes. That was a chapter and a half, maybe. More like a chapter. This is just a falling down the staircase. In many ways, this is the meat, I think, to David's life. That you can have all of the skills, all of the experiences, all of the gifting from God. But if you fail to use it, it just messes everything up. So let's look at verse 25. Remember, uh, Joab has orchestrated a reconciliation between David and Absalom. Absalom's been in exile. And why do you think Joab, of all people, wants reconciliation between David and Absalom? Job's not a nice guy. Yeah. And he does a little of that. He he cushions cushions the fall. He would have been if David is strong too, since he's probably as a person. Yeah. He he wants a secure government, you know, secure position for David so that uh, you know, there's not a, uh, another competitor for the throne. I, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think uh, Joab just wants it to go smooth, right? Um, it looks like Absalom is going to be the successor to the throne, and uh, you want him 
him around. You don't want him isolated. So probably not good spiritual um, reasoning, but it's, it's very practical. So in any event, it's rough, but Absalom comes back from Geshur, far up north. And does he talk to David? Or does David talk to him? Nope. It'll be 11 years before they talk since the original rape and uh, the revolt. 11 years. And really, they never actually do. Not really. But we read in verse 25. Now no one in Israel was as handsome as Absalom. From head to foot, he was the perfect specimen of a man. That'd be a great Bible verse to put on your card. <clears throat> put on Facebook. <laughs> Maybe a dating site, right? I'm the perfect specimen of a man. Where do we suppose David or Absalom gets his good looks? Yeah, that's, that's the implication, right? You're good in a biblical sense if you have children or grandchildren. And so if your children are good, it reflects back on you, sort of like today. And so there is, you know, an echo that David, remember, he was a, a manly man. He was a red man. They described him back when he fought Goliath. So uh, he was an outdoors guy. He was healthy and strong. And of course, he's produced a son that's uh, healthy and strong. So, cultures are funny. Uh, what makes a person attractive, both a male or female? Um, it's a little weird to talk about it, but in Hebrew society, there's one quality that makes you irresistible to the ladies. Any idea? <laughs> Tim's getting to know me. He's like, no, no, Kurt, no, no. <laughs> little, little restraint. Well... It's not as bad as you think. It's hair. Think back to the 80s and 90s, right? What what was it to pick up a girl? You had to have a good um, uh, mullet or, or, or Van Halen haircut. But for the Hebrews, it's always been, man, they love their hair. So think ZZ Top. I mean, that's like a, a man to die for. So long hair, big beards. And we see it throughout all of Scripture. They have hang-ups about their beards. I remember David's ambassadors, they got their beards shaved. And they couldn't go in public. Uh, there's almost a rule that you can't be a rabbi unless you have a good beard. Um, it's, it's one of those funny things. So we, <laughs> we have this really weird description of Absalom. He's a perfect specimen of the man. They give us the detail. He cut his hair only once a year. And then only because it was too heavy to carry around. When he weighed it, it came out to five pounds. What? Um, what was that? That guy from the 80s that did the butter commercials? Fabio? Or what was the guy? It, yeah, that's what I always imagined Absalom to be. You know, the big, oh, But with, with a big old beard. Um, God, the Middle East is a weird, weird place. It's just weird. Uh, yeah, yeah, which, you know, 200 shekels sounds like a ton, right? It's just five pounds, although that's a lot of hair. Um, and one of my Israeli professors, I should bring this picture for you. Um, he, he always makes the point that 
Um, in the West, when we think people have long hair, they just have, you know, it just goes straight down. But have you ever seen a Jew with long hair? It's like they have an afro, right? They, they, they actually called it a Jew-fro. Uh, you know? So they, they get big, poofy. <laughs> so it's just a little different um, than uh, Fabio that we would imagine. But... This is a, a great successor to David. You know, he's got just about all of David's uh, qualities. He's good looking, he's strong, he's popular, he has that oblique approach that his dad does. And then, you know, there's a sensitive side to him. 27, he had three sons and one daughter. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she was very beautiful. So he named one of his daughters after his sister, who was raped and attacked. That's that. That's a kind guy. I mean, that's adding something uh, to the life of his sister. Just to say real quick about Tamar, we've talked about it. It's a date palm. I've gotten far more interested in these palms than I ever thought I would. Um, it. It, it's sort of a combination of their favorite sweet, which is this date palm, and the sense of a fruit. And so one of the things that God actually decorates the temple with is this date palm. And it's the sense of the fruit from the garden, but the sweetness in life. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful kind of word. This type of date palm actually went extinct in the Middle East. And they were uh, doing archaeological excavations, and they found a jar of the seeds, and several millennia old. And typical Israelis, they thought, eh, what the hell, let's plant it. And so they did, and the thing grew back. And so they actually have just a handful of these now that are live, and they're trying to bring them back, um, the original Tamar uh, date palms. So it, it's interesting. Anytime anything biblical kind of comes back into the world, I think we, we need to pay attention. But verse 28, Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years without getting to see the king. Like I said, we do two years, three years, two years, four years, 11 years altogether without seeing the king. So the scripture is just screaming at us. What is it that you don't want to talk about, David? What is going on here? You have faced enemies like the uh, Arameans and beat them the likes of which you never stood a chance. You fought Goliath. You fought Ammonites. You fought all sorts of people. You have stared down and been brave. But you won't talk about your sins with your sons. David knows about murder. David knows about lust. So the Scripture is continually pushing us to ask, why? Why is David not doing this? What what do you think it is? Shame. Shame. It's powerful. When your children think something of you, it uh, has a way of really affecting you, right? Um, the 
there's always that problem. If God extends grace to us, then we have to be able to tell the story where that grace was needed. And so you end up not telling God's story because you don't want to talk about your own shame. You know, if Steve was here, he'd have a good psalm for us. Sometimes I get the sense of David in the Psalms, the guy won't shut up. I mean, he just wrote psalm after psalm after psalm, and they're, you know, they're good, but he's a blabbermouth. And yet when it comes to this, just read Absalom as psalm, David. Um, Use some of that greatness and, and talk to him. But like we said in the beginning, um, Scripture spends more time on this than just about anything else with David's life. So it's really God saying, men, pay attention to this. We've got stories to tell, we've got hard things to share, and we've got to do it. Things never get better when we ignore them. And the damage of silence to our kids can be devastating. 28, Absalom lived lived in Jerusalem for two years. Then Absalom sent to Joab to ask him to intercede for him. But Joab refused to come. So there is the Joab we know. He's a political figure. He figures, well, David's not happy. I'm not getting any more involved than I already am. Absalom sent for him a second time, but again he refused to come. So this is where I think we have a chip off the old block. Absalom has tried to ask. He's been refused. And he's going to be like dad. How is Absalom going to get a meeting with the king? Any clue? What would David do? It's the same oblique approach. Hit them where they don't expect it. And Absalom is like dad. So Absalom said to his servants, Go and set fire to Joab's barley field, (laughs) the one next to mine. So they set his field on fire, as Absalom had commanded. Nothing gets somebody's attention like setting their house on fire. Um, In this case, the nobility, which Joab is included, uh, like Absalom, you know, they're making their money uh, over from owning uh, farming uh, areas, and so they get the income from that. Uh, so barley is, is wonderful. Um, God invented barley for what? Beer. Um, bad tasting bread and beer. Uh, so you have, um, not that I know that, but anyway, um, you have, we were just talking about this this morning. You have two basic alcohol like drinks in Israel. You have beer, which is the more common people drink. And you don't hear it discussed a lot, but it's, it's very close to bread, right? They, they take a portion of the bread and then they take another, uh, make bread and then they make beer with it. And so that's what the average person is getting by, which they'd use barley for. And then wine, which is uh, for the, the upper class, the, the, the well to do, um, certainly far more labor intensive. So, uh, you're, you're messing with my beer, Absalom. I'm, I'm upset. But it got Absalom's attention, right? Um, extreme acts, approaching where you didn't. 
Then Joab came to Absalom and demanded, Why did your servant set field to my fire? Or why did they set uh, fire to my field? And Absalom replied, Because I wanted you to ask the king why he brought me back from Geshur if he didn't intend to see me. I might as well have stayed there. Let me see the king. If he finds me guilty of anything, then let him execute me. So where is Absalom here? Emotionally, do you think? When you're hitting the spot that killing me is better than ignoring me, you're in a pretty rough place. That's a, that's a terrible place. Do you want to do this to your kids? He's a grown man and he's acting like a kid. He is acting like a kid, isn't he? Um, it's interesting to try to really gauge. Absalom is not perfect, but I don't really think they present him as a villain. David is, like we've seen continually, struggling with the idea that he's a leader, he's in charge, he's the father, he's the king. And when Absalom or when David doesn't make right choices, people get hurt, just like we talked about with the ark. Uh, David knew the way the ark should be transported, but he didn't do it. He cut corners, and so a guy died. He knows what needs to be said, and he's not doing it um, for for whatever reasons, and I think they're they're deep. Absalom is pretty desperate here, and desperate heirs to the throne are never are never a good thing. I wish somebody had a class on how to talk to your parents as you get old. It's hard. Um, my dad loves to talk about the weather. <laughs> so I'm like, Dad, I don't want to talk about the weather. Well, you know, it was 47 today in El Paso. Dad, that's fascinating. I've got an app that can tell me that. But, you know, sometimes you just got to talk about weather with your parents, right? Uh, just, it is, it is what it is. What's the weather in Midland? <sighs> Dad. Uh, but you, you got you to talk to them. Um, that, that communication has to keep going between, I think, our fathers, our parents, our kids, and also our Father in Heaven. Silence from the person God put in your life to be your foundation can be devastating. But look at what happens. 33. So Joab took the king... Or So Joab told the king what Absalom had said. Then at last, David summoned his estranged son, Absalom. And Absalom came and bowed low before the king, and David kissed him. Now this is good. This is a great start. This is reconciliation. The Jews have this custom of the kiss of peace. I had a Lutheran, uh, Steve and I both did, a professor in seminary, and he was big on the liturgy, the things that we were supposed to do in church. And apparently traditional Lutherans, is anybody raised Lutheran? I don't know if you ever did this. They gave the kiss of peace. You know, when you sort of welcome each other, you're supposed to... Um, 
all right, we're West Texans. We no, <laughs> no. You know, he's like, it's very important that you no, nobody, nobody, no man's kissing a man. Period. And the last thing I want is some old man kissing some old woman, and it's not his wife, right? So, um, but it's this long, long tradition that the Jews have that when you come back uh, after a long separation from someone, or you've been sent on a mission, that the full acceptance is this this kiss of peace, this this kiss of shalom. Interesting enough, this is what Judas does to Jesus the night he betrays him. So it's the it's that same kind of cultural thing. Um, it's sort of important for us to get. But so David takes the step. It, it it's something. Um, it, but that's it. <sighs> It's like all this time, finally, you know, we get invited over for Christmas. And I got your Christmas gift. There's no conversation. There's no, let me tell you about Bathsheba. Let me tell you about the son I lost. Let me tell you about Uriah, the man I killed. Let me tell you about the psalm I wrote where I seek to be who I'm not. I seek God's forgiveness. And so it really, as hard as this is to say, it's kind of too little too late. Uh, David takes... A step, but it's it's not what is needed. So chapter 15, Absalom has given up. After this, Absalom brought, bought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 footmen to run ahead of him. So it's easy for us to miss the significance of this, but who has chariots and horses in Israel? Nobody. What did David do when he caught horses? He captured them? Yeah, killed them, hamstringed them. They can't afford them. Uh, it's, it's too much. Uh, they don't have the fields. They don't have the resources to raise them. Uh, David does not have a chariot, I'm sure. Uh, it will be under Solomon that they finally get some, but not a lot. This is just a level of wealth and sophistication that they don't have. And so... The heir to the throne suddenly shows up one day, you know, in a Royals Royce. Uh, he's got a Learjet. Everybody's like, he is so handsome. Look at that hair and look at his ride. I mean, you, you can see the wheels turning in Absalom's head. Um, I'm going to show you a king and it's going to be, um, it, it's going to be awesome. The irony with all of this is what happens with this chariot? Do you know? He will die in this chariot. Um, what, what are most Israelites writing? Do you remember? Donkey. Remember when uh, Absalom killed everybody, the rest of the princes ran out and got on their very swift donkeys. <laughs> Which, come on, Bertha, give it all she's got. <laughs> but... Uh, Absalom's moved on up. He's, uh, he's looking good. Verse 2. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When the people brought a case for the king for judgment, Absalom would ask them where they were from. And he would tell them, and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, You've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I was the judge. Then the people began to bring their problems. Then people could bring their problems to me. 
and I would give them justice. And when people tried to bow before me, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and embraced them. So in this way, Absalom stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. So the wheels are turning, aren't they? He's ingratiating himself, and he's, he's being smart here. He knows his dad's weakness. Who is he doing this for? It's kind of a subtle, but is it just the Judeans that are the tribe of David that he's doing this, ingratiating himself with? It's not. It's all of the tribes. And he knows his dad's weakness. Is his dad particularly popular in the north? Not at all. Because all the shenanigans that went on with killing uh, the descendants of Saul and his generals. So the, the north has always distrusted David. Absalom knows this. And so even though Jerusalem's the capital, people are coming uh, from different areas. And Absalom's out there looking good, got the car, um, saying, boy, if I was here to take care of your case... Uh, we, we would we would be strong. Incidentally, this is where judicial matters are handled at uh, in a city. It's the city gate. It's usually the most prestigious looking, uh, most decorated part of a city is, is the front gate. Uh, certainly over designed because when you besiege a city, that's the most vulnerable spot. Interesting again, when we get descriptions of heaven, uh, both from Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, they spend a lot of time talking about the gates. And that seems strange to us, right? The pearly gates. What does that all have to do with anything? But it's the same notion that the most important part of the city is the city gate. It's sort of like our version of downtown. Uh, it's, it's, it's the special place. But David is not at the city gates. Uh, his son is. Look at verse 7. After four years... Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron to offer a sacrifice to the Lord in fulfillment of a vow I made to him. For while I was at Geshur, I promised to sacrifice to him in Hebron if he would bring me back to Jerusalem. All right, the king told him, Go and fulfill your vow. So Absalom, after four years of ingratiating himself, um, sort of laying the foundation for a revolt, has gone and pulled the trigger. Hebron, you might remember, is the capital of Judah. Judah is David's tribe. That is his power base. So in a sense, David is ruling from Washington in Jerusalem, but Austin is still his, his home base. Although, how in the world did Austin become the capital of Texas? I mean, it's just it's wrong. But anyway, um, where was David proclaimed king? In Jerusalem or Hebron? Hebron. It's in Hebron. That's why Absalom is going. If Absalom can get the support of the Judean elders, the, the in a sense, Texas is going to side with. Absalom, uh, David's fate is sealed. The northern tribes will support anybody but David. 
And if Absalom can get the tribes the, or Judah to move towards him, David will have no support except for what's David's ace up his sleeve. The guys that always support him, his mercenaries. Absalom can't do anything about them, but the whole national army, if you will, will side with Absalom. The crazy thing is Absalom is hugely popular compared to his dad. And that's exactly what happens. So David, not really caring, I think, just wants Absalom out of the way. He says, sure, go ahead. So Absalom went to Hebron. But while he was there, he sent secret messages to every part of Israel to stir up rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the trumpets, his message read, you will know that Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He took 200 men from Jerusalem as his guests. But they knew nothing of his intentions. While he was offering the sacrifice, he sent for Ahinophel, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo. Soon many others also joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell King David, All Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Then we must flee at once, or I will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry, if we get out of the city before he arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. We are with you, his advisors replied. Do what you think is best. So the king and his household set out at once. He left no one behind except for ten of his concubines to keep the palace in order. Ladies, I got a job for you. What? Ten concubines? Ten? Anyway, the king and his people sat out on foot, and they paused at the edge of the city to let David's troops move past to lead the way. There were 600 Gittites who had come with David from Gath, along with the king's bodyguard. So he's got this core of Philistines now, and then he's got his own bodyguard. Then the king turned to Ittai, the captain of the Gittites, and said, While you're coming with us, go back with your men to King Absalom, for you are a guest in Israel, a foreigner in exile. You arrived only yesterday and how should I force you to wander with us? I didn't even know you were, I don't even know where we will go. So go back and take your troops with you, and may the Lord show you his unfailing love and kindness. So basically, David doesn't trust them. Uh, he has supplemented his mercenary force with more Philistines. Remember, he's beat up the Philistines pretty, pretty thoroughly. So they're, they're looking for work. But, what a nightmare. Your son is coming with the country, and sort of all your mistakes are coming home to roost. Uh, they are going to put you to the sword if they can catch you. And so David will enter the hardest point of his life. It's almost like a walk of shame. We'll pick it up next week where uh, people that he has feuds with meet David along the road and they hurdle insults and they throw stuff at him. And uh, we had that whole thing with Mephibosheth uh, where David seems to be betrayed by a man that he was merciful to. So this is, this is sad. Um, 
I, I hope now we can appreciate David is, is like all of us. He's not completely evil. He's not completely good. He's ignored a problem. He's made it worse. And now it's just exploded in his face. His own son is going to overthrow him. And what options does David have? How do you put down this revolt? You've got to fight back. In which case, you're killing your own men. And chances are, Absalom's not going to go quietly into the night. Maybe, maybe there was another way. But Joab goes with David, and he's got his mercenaries. So we'll, we'll set it up for next week there, that there's going to be a confrontation. As much as David doesn't want the confrontation, doesn't even want to speak to Absalom, um, all of this has happened. And the sad thing in all of it is, David never lost a battle he fought. But he lost battles he never fought. If you get the meaning. That which he doesn't want to fight, he can't win. God gave him the skills and the abilities to do anything um, that he wanted, especially on the battlefield. But ignoring it doesn't make it go away. So, questions, comments, worries? David's a lot different than in, you imagined him as a kid, didn't he? I always go through waves with David. I like him, I hate him, I like him, I pity him. Um, yeah. In other sections, we, we, we've heard a lot about what priests would say, or go to priests, or priests, or the yeah. He's not talking to anybody. No prophets, no priests, the ephod and all that, nothing. Yeah. And I think I do that. When I get frustrated and mad and I'm not doing what I want to do, I don't talk to God either. So a good good observation. What did you tell David to do? Make peace with his son. Yeah. Just. Yeah, Israel's not huge, but um, David could abdicate. He could say, you know what, Absalom, you take it. I've messed up. You go. And I don't know what kind of King Absalom would have been. I mean, like I say, I don't know if he's a villain, but he's he's been driven to a place that uh, good stuff is not coming out of him. It's like he learned the worst of his dad. So, well, just one note I wonder about. Our nation doesn't talk to itself much anymore. We talk at each other. Um, we exchange shots over Facebook. Um, but I wonder where we're headed, you know, in a country. We, uh, we need to be united at a time uh, that the world needs a very strong America. 
Steve and I were working on sermons for the next couple of months, and I thought, what happens if we end up in a war over Ukraine or Taiwan? I mean, it's just, it's insanity that we seem right there. And can the United States fight both those? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want my son to go fight that. But it, certainly at a time in which we need to be strong as a nation, we really do. Um, because the world will not be better with Putin and communist China running the show. Um, we're, we're very much a nation that screams at each other. We, we don't talk. Not that there's not severe differences in, in who we are as a nation, but I wish we could get our act back together again. So, anyway. Well, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. You remind us that it often can be a sharp sword that cuts through our distractions and moves to the heart. Today we pray that this sinks deep to us, that it does remind us we need to have those hard conversations. We need to be able to tell our story when you were good and we were not. Help us, O oh Lord, to know that we are people that are forgiven. We are people of grace, but we're also people of mistakes and sin. So help us today to continue to hear your call to have those conversations we need to. To find the time today just to pick up the phone and call our sons and daughters and say, you know what? I love you. You're better than me. <laughs> I want a better life for you than I had. May we remind them the time that you, oh God, have made our lives better. Help us always to be mindful that you call us to be real, not to pretend to be people that we're not, not to pretend to be holier or righteous than we are, but just be people that tell the story of what you have done for us. May we never find ourselves in this place like David, O oh Father, where our silence kills. Help us to really value what today is and not push off which should be done before the sun sets. Help us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, gentlemen.